in late June 1926, Attilio Teruzzi, a decorated military officer turned commander of Mussolini's black shirts, married Liliana Weinman, a rising young American opera star, with the blessing of Il Duce. In her latest book, The Perfect Fascist, a story of love, power, and morality in Mussolini's Italy, Dr. Victoria de Grazia, the more collegiate professor of history at Columbia University, relates the story of what turned out to, turned out to be an inconvenient marriage in an exploration of the social history of fascism and the rise and fall of Benito Mussolini. It's published by Belknap Press, which is part of the Harvard University Press. And I'm very pleased that it brings Professor de Grazia to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here to talk to you. Wasn't their wedding a major social event at the time with many important people attending? Times spoke of it as the first fascist wedding or a fascist wedding in its society page. And it was organized with the bride's father's money. He's a Lower East Side Jewish uh, uh, manufacture textiles with his very large means uh, in for Europe at the time, and it was a, intended to create a new fascist establishment, inviting all the big wig fascists, uh, the industrialists, uh, the doyen of the, that society, as well as the bride's uh, entourage of fifty uh, mm. coming from the United States and, and Galicia, her parents' homeland. So you, mentioned, deal. you mentioned that she was Jewish. Uh, uh, didn't that complicate things? Didn't they have to marry twice in a civil ceremony and then in the church? Uh, in the 20s was a particular period. I think you know everywhere in the West that there, there was a growing number of, uh, of uh, uh, religious intermarriages, they were regarded as religious, not, not racial intermarriages uh, at, the, at the time. And uh, in Italy, um, for a, a rising fascist, it all of a sudden became quite fashionable to get a church wedding. Uh, these guys in the past probably wouldn't have married at all. They might have had common law wives. They were often coming out of very strong anti-clerical backgrounds. So to just have a civil marriage wasn't enough. He had to also have a church marriage, and that meant getting, um, in effect, the Pope's permission. It's not that the Pope signs off, but in the Catholic Church, since uh, a Jew was an infidel, according to um, religious theology and, 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 and practically speaking, um, there was indeed required that, that permission. And that, too, was regarded as unusual, in other words, to have uh, both a civil ceremony and a religious ceremony. It was a big, big, a big deal. Whether they even worried about whether the bride was Jewish, it wasn't, wasn't clear. It didn't seem to be that many people paid much attention to that <laughs> at, at, at that time, 1926. Now, you've reconstructed their story through family letters and, and court records. How did you gain access to them? The... Um, a distant cousin of the bride, a very lovely New Yorker, a cultivated Upper West Side, uh, was very afraid that they might get thrown away these papers, which had been left 
with, with the family uh, 20, 30 years ago, because she being uh, a, let's call her an amateur historian, you know, somebody with a strong historical sensibility, thought, oh my goodness, oh, look, these papers, they have all these wonderful photographs in them. Uh, you know, may, maybe they're going to be meaningful. And so she came to me or to various relatives and friends. I'm being a historian. And wow, when I looked into these bags, you know, Bloomingdale bags, beginning to uncover this stuff, which seemed, which seemed really, really interesting. And that, that, that was the start, shall we say. And, and it uh, fit in with the things that you'd been writing uh, in the past, so she knew that you would understand the situation. Now, um, wasn't Attilio much older than Liliana? Uh, he already had a, a, established a long military career. How did they meet? Well, this is the young woman who uh, wanted to be a great opera singer. She wanted to debut at the Met. Well, that was the aspiration of a brilliant young uh, Jewish girl with with, with considerable talent uh, as as a as a as a, a very young opera singer. And off she goes to Milan, which was considered at the moment Toscanini was in charge there to be the center of the revival of opera uh, in the world after World War One. The Germans had lost, the Austrians had lost, and there. There was Milan, and it, so she was there, and she was a big woman, probably about five eight, and you know, big poof of hair, large bosom. I mean, she occupied a lot of space, <laughs> walking around the center of Milan, and you know, this soldier back from the wars, uh, you know, everybody hangs around, looking at the girls and so on, and so that was the the, the first meeting. That's the first way he set eyes on her. Now. That isn't the story, of course, that he was stalking her and she was like a tourist diva walking through the center of Milan, but rather that they fated to meet on a train ride uh, on the way to Milan, uh, from Milan to Rome, the same train that Mussolini had taken uh, at the time of the March on Rome three years earlier, and she was going to Cairo to sing, and he was going down to... Uh, Rome to on business as a, a commander of the militia, uh, fascist militia, and so they met. They were fated to meet, and then the story was after she discovered, oh my goodness, that he was such an interesting big fascist that he discovered, oh, an aspiring, pure, idealist young woman, American, wealthy too, and die was cast. That That is a sort of the, the, the fable they told about themselves, but in many true elements. Well, he was already uh, fairly well known. He had distinguished himself in Libya during the Italian-Turkish War, and then left the military mm -hmm. to engage in fascist politics. And uh, he took part in that uh, 1922 march on Rome that brought Mussolini to power. Mm -hmm. Later, he served as a colonial administrator in Africa, uh, and there was a lot of um, complicated stuff that occurred along the way. He was a very controversial figure. But um, you called him the perfect fascist. That's uh, the, the title of your book. Um, he was one of what were called fascism's new men. What distinguished them from other men in Italy at the time? And was it only men? Well, I think more, more than anything, what 
distinguished them was their pretense to be new men, you know, to uh, that they were much younger than the very geriatric liberal ruling elite. That was true. These were men. Mussolini was the youngest prime minister Italy had ever had, and at the time he was the youngest prime minister uh, in or head of government in 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 Europe. Uh, so that their youth, their relative youth, men late 30s, early 40s, certainly distinguished them um, from the, 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 you know, the, the old liberal swamp, as they, they practically used that term. Um, they were coming from the lower classes, many of the leaders. Mussolini, uh, very similar in that way to Teruzzi's background of men who were striving, who had no capital of their own, who therefore also wanted, needed women uh, to help them, women perhaps of wealth, women of, of intelligence, who would teach them how to dress, you know, how to have good manners in society. So, you know, they were part of the, you know, if you think of you know, men, on, men on mission, men on the make, that probably would distinguish them. They, they, they also said, well, they all served in the army in one way or another. And that's true that most all of them did, Italian men, of course, of that age. They were born around the early 1880s. Uh, so they were, you know, prime uh, stuff for military um, uh, to be to be non-commissioned officers. Tutsi was a, was a, was a, actually a military officer during the war. So that's true. Their war experience, their hatred of the old, that distinguished them as new men. You know, the, the, all of the old morality, all of the old conventions the old ruling elites, they hated them. They were also anti-clerical. They would all change. You know, they, they change a lot. So this idea of the new, the new men, that was a big idea in the 1920s. So they, they were going to be the new fascist men as opposed to the new Bolshevik men or the new Americans. And they had their 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 idea of their spouses, friends, women would be the same way. That was initially the idea that they were all unconventional. And there were a lot of new women then. Uh, new Italian women, but especially this not new American woman. She was something very special because once she, you know, uh, uh, her her ambitions were inordinate. You know, to debut at the Met and become a great a great diva—that's not nothing. <laughs> to uh, her 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 talent was immense. She spoke five or six languages. Uh, the 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 fact that she had money behind her, her father was making, starting to make money, but also because she embodied this idea of being self-made, which was so American, and and that is part of the story, bringing this American myth of of, uh, of climbing into the inner circle, of being an idealist, changing uh, the society by your leadership, the very idea of a power couple. That was really her idea, which she brings in to to. Uh, fascism, you know, sort of this American idea, really quite crazy, presumptuous, arrogant in a way, but also with its idealism. And that sort of makes the, 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 the catastrophic nature of the society, of the story, you know, the, the, the great sort of idealism, the married couple is going to you know, jump into Mussolini's uh, circle and serve the Duce. She, she didn't use the word Duce, she said the president serve Italy, my adopted country, uh, and you know, we're going to you know, set off on this journey together to be worthy of the new Italy of, of fascism as a model for, uh, for Italy and for other countries. So therein, the hubris, if you want, and the 
tragedy which would inexorably unfold from that, at least on a personal level. Now, he was not a kid anymore. Wasn't there attacks on unmarried men in Italy? Um, but ideally, male, males would become virile uh, breed stock, and women uh, would be would be fertile, f all in the purpose for the purposes of the state. No, you're absolutely right. You know, I think when you come down to an individual, what he at that point, you know, he had delayed marrying, and Italians married late then because they you know, were poor. These this kind of crew, you know, they marry late or they marry very irregularly because they were emigrating, they were doing this and doing that. And so they would marry late, but he especially late because he was at war, maybe. And, you know, he had some very, you know, homoerotic relations with the, with the military. There's no question that the military created the kind of homosocial life of a great adventure, brothels, women, this and that and the other. So he is really being urged three years after the March on Rome to cool it, you know, <laughs> stop roaming around, settle down. That was the moment that Mussolini's ordering his men to normalize, to marry. He himself, Mussolini, remarries in the church uh, in 1925. So the idea is now we're going bourgeois. And so you guys better get off the street, stop being squadrista, beating people up, go home, settle down and, and have children because that's what you did. You didn't settle down just to be with a wife. <laughs> you settled down uh, to do your you know, bourgeois duties, to have a nice big family. And that was certainly Teruzzi's intention in marrying this woman, that she, that she was going to be the mother of his children as part although of her, they, her Although home. they didn't have children, he did have a child with another woman. We'll get to that later. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're streaming at WBAI.org. And my guest is Victoria de Grazia. Her latest book, The Perfect Fascist, A Story of Love, Power, and Morality in Mussolini's Italy. 2022 will mark the centenary of Mussolini's March on Rome. What was it yeah. about Italy at the time that led to it becoming the, the home of the first fascist uh, takeover, uh, it, it, which was occurring rather uh, not all that long after uh, Italian unification, the Risorgimento uh, from 1861, um, or maybe even a, a little later when Armistice was signed with Austria in 1866. Was the country in turmoil? It was, it was in a huge turmoil after World War One, So Italy, late, lately unified, very unevenly developed, um, uh, you know, a, a, liberal, a liberal democracy that was highly imperfect, a church which still had not recognized the, 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 the new state uh, you know, 60 years after uh, unification. And, and so, you know, the war with enormous cost really unhinged the country. And then, you know, the nationalists, like the young Mussolini, very skillful demagogues are coming along and saying, you know, are, 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 are insisting that the, the uh, victory was mutilated, that Italy really didn't get its just desserts, that the liberal ruling class didn't respect the war good, that the socialists sneered at them. 
So the upshot is that the country is in great turmoil and the older political parties are not effective at uh, managing the old political system. You know, this, this often happens. I mean, let's say the post-World War I period, everywhere there's huge turmoil in the political party. So it's not only Italy you know, on how to manage. You know, all of a sudden they see there's revolution in Russia. They can see that the United States is coming on the scene and represents an enormous power, but they don't understand it. So this old Europe starts to seem very shriveled. And in this, the, it, it, Italy it was the weak link, if you want. Revolution doesn't succeed. The fascists offer this new, very opportunistic program, and they're able to, with a lot of violence, to work their way into the political system. But uh, Italy had already gotten swept up in the, the competition for colonies, which, uh, of course, was important in, in, in the story of Taruzzi, uh, because he had distinguished himself in the military. Um, right. And didn't many Italians believe that uh, when it entered World War I, it would be rewarded with new lands? Uh, th that didn't happen, did it? Although Taruzzi yeah, did distinguish himself there as well. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree. I like to tell the story as a bigger one. You've got, I mean, imperialist Europe and Italy, you know, kind of a latecomer, you know, wants to, he calls itself the proletarian nation, trying to get the plutocrats, the British and the French, to share with it. And, and then finding after it joins the British and the French in the war effort on the grounds that it's going to get, the, the, the country will get these pieces of land, uh, mainly in what is now, um, you know, in the, in the Balkans, that particularly, um, that they don't get them. And, but that's used. I mean, the foreign policy is used to stir up all sorts of social rancors, which you know, existed independently. It's, it's how bad, bum international politics interact with bum national politics to, to allow for new movements to Try to make sense of them, and the fascists did by saying, "What we need is a, you know, a, a nationalist, vigorous government. The state will dominate everybody. They will get rid of the socialists and the Bolsheviks, and you know, mobilize the country to become great in uh, a different system, uh, not under the thumb of the old dirty British, who you know, shouldn't be in the Mediterranean in the first place." Although Mussolini began as a, a socialist journalist. Right, right. He then moved to the right. He, yeah, I mean, he didn't. He didn't say he was moving to the right. <laughs> he said he's moving, you know, forward. You know, I'll take in reactionaries. I'll take in revolutionaries. I'll take in conservatives. I'll take in radicals. What we need is the new. You know, the new. We've got to get rid of the old. We've got to destroy the old. And then, what was going to be the new? Uh, then he was very opportunistic, and that would always be changing. If the, the bottom motif was that he was going to be the leader and that he had this capacity that came from being a very gifted journalist. He was very, you know, cosmopolitan. Uh, um, he had a big amount of experience with pre you know, organizing uh, before World War One. He, he read very superficially, but you know, he read a little Lenin, a little Sorel, you know, a little this, a little that. So he kind of felt like he knew which way the world was going. 
and more, what had to be dumped and what had to be done for the liberals and the social reformers. That was going to be dumped. Feminism, too. Lots of things were going to be dumped <laughs> and yeah. going forward. Now, Terusi was definitely uh, a, a man who, uh, with a future, he uh, was a decorated uh, soldier close to Mussolini. Uh, he uh, was commander of the Black Shirts, and he was elected to the uh, Italian Chamber of Deputies in, in 1924. But only three years after he had been promoted to commander of the Black Shirts, he, uh, he accused Liliana of being unfaithful, which she vigorously denied. Do we know why? He uh, was suddenly uh, discarding a woman he had so eagerly courted. Well, you know, this is the story. It's just, uh, the, 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 the relationship between story and history, which becomes so complicated between a marriage, private life, what goes on, and politics. So, my, you know, the overriding sense is he marries her, courts her at the time that America was so important. Italy was trying to open up, get an American capital at 1925, 20, 24, 25, 26, courting her. She's like the perfect bride for the perfect fascist at that time. He wanted to be a statesman in the government, governor of, 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 of Saranayaka in Libya with the capital at Benghazi. In 1930, he's head of the Black Shirts paramilitary organization, enormous, 350,000 men. And all of a sudden, he, he learns that maybe, you know, packet of letters, it sounds like you know, a novel, a bad novel, which, which is with her manager, where she uses all this gushy, kind of creepy opera language, this diva language, oh, darling, this smells so good, blah, 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 and so on. And he, encouraged by his retinue, clearly, who laughed like a Yago, say, oh, you know, she betrayed you. And this is, of course, so weird because she's a virgin. How could she have betrayed, betrayed him? And in any case, it would have taken place before the marriage. So it's this kind of crazy melodrama which, uh, under a very crazy politics, which is becoming sort of crazier and crazier. It gets closed off and more and more man-dominated in this, as the whole state becomes more and more fascist and more and more police-like um, police all these surveillance mechanisms. So at that point, probably the logic is who needs this dame? You know, who, 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 who talks too much, who throws her weight around, who pretends to have an official car and so on and so forth. America now is like, you know, the, the, the Jewish financial plutocrat, Wall Street's crashing. So, you know, this is kind of a What's interesting in this in this work is to see this guy who's kind of a weak guy changing with the times, so that in one moment he could see her as a kind of savior on, on uh, the American on the pedestal with all of these qualities, and barely three years later he's seeing her as a kind of demon who could undermine his honor, his honor as a fascist which is a, an interesting concept if you think about but, it. But uh, it wasn't because she was uh, Jewish. When the time came to find another partner, he chose another Jewish woman to be his wife. Uh, at the same time, uh, since Italy had was a Catholic country with no divorce law, um, how, what was his option? What were his options to dissolve his, his marriage to Liliana? Could he get it through the church? 
Well, the options were that of a fascist regime. First of all, he uh, tells her to not come back to Italy, and she does. Then he try, uses his police, private, uh, his thugs, to try to, to harass her and try to get her exiled and sent out uh, of Italy. Then he tries to use the possibility that Mussolini could use his power as a mediator to get a kind of separation divorce uh, which uh, she would have to agree to. And, of course, that doesn't work out. Uh, she has a good lawyer. Uh, uh, and then, finally, the only way, because it had become theocratic, because Mussolini had basically changed the, the, the way um, marriages could be dissolved, handing it over to the church as part of their agreement, the only way is through an annulment. And that takes them into this kind of inquisition by the church, what is a true marriage, and what's the, what? Whether this marriage was true marriage, or whether uh, it was based on wrong premises, therefore it never existed and could be dissolved, had to be dissolved, which is the church trial. And what's fascinating about this, also to understand fascism and you know, the morality of Italy under fascism, is that one, it's the church. Two, the church has an amazing amount of power, which the fascists are trying to undermine. So it's, it's, it's really this you know, Caesar versus Christ, that kind of Caesar versus God. You can see that struggle going on uh, uh, under fascism, which is part of what my effort here is to explain or to not explain, to, in the story to tell how complicated moral choices are under these behind the facade of these fascist regimes. Um, and then, how and then this finish, I'm sorry. That you know, that was, I was going to say it got even more complicated when Mussolini then uh, got closer to the Nazis in the 1930s and introduced the first race laws. Both of his wives, of Terucci's wives, were Jewish. Um, and uh, so we have this fascist Italy uh, with this complex dynamic between the Catholic Church, fascism, and, and the attitudes of the Italian public. And, and uh, Terruzzi is not an unknown figure. How, how did that all play out? Was it, this a newspaper story? <laughs> no, you, no, I mean, there seemed to be, there seemed to be kind of an inner logic that is, he would choose a, an American Jewish woman in 1925. Well, why not? Very cosmopolitan, open. This is the new man. You know, this, this is a kind of exciting big figure, you know, who looks somewhat met and big like his mother. This is not unimportant. In choosing your spouses, what they look like. And then the second woman, well, he can't marry a normal woman again. He can't. Uh, have a, a liaison, uh, he does, but there was married women, but he wants a child. So he discovers, you know, in 1936, another young woman, now 10 years younger than uh, Liliana, uh, who big, um, lively as can be, uh, without, you know, the money, because she's an orphan, uh, but from Romanian Jew from Cairo, also multilingual, and that she's perfect. She's perfect. She likes the excitement of being part of his retinue. 
he likes the fact that she is a very honest and funny woman, likes to dance, he likes to dance, and they have a child out of wedlock. And, you know, eyebrows might have been raised, uh, but, uh, you know, she turns out to be actually quite bourgeois in her behavior. Once she has her child, she stops being, you know, the runaround girl. She takes care of the child with a lot of help from nursemaids and so on and so forth. But that creates a problem. I mean, you know, when the race laws come in in 1938, uh, these people who the police didn't even really know how to identify as Jewish or not. They call it Coptic Christian. They say she's Romanian. They say this or say that. But race consciousness all of a sudden begins to appear, and more and more, these people become who were just people, women who caused trouble or brought pleasure become labeled as Jewish. And so the problem really starts of how he's going to deal now with his past marriage that she wants to get rid of and how to legitimate this new companion who's Jewish and whom he can't protect by marrying. Meanwhile, his career continues. He's promoted to Lieutenant General. He fights in Spain, uh, uh, but what happened after Mussolini was forced to seek refuge in the, the Nazi-held part of Italy, the northern Italy, after uh, pretty much the defeat of Italy? What was that, around 1943? Uh, did, did he ever, was Cerusi ever caught and sent to prison? Well, the um, 43 is a big turning point because lots of fascists left um, the... Um, you know, fled from Mussolini, but Truzzi again, the perfect fascist, is very loyal. So he accompanies to the north, where he has to hide because he has this Jewish companion. And if the Nazis find her, it's occupied territory. They would send her to uh, to Auschwitz. I mean, there would be no doubt about that. Although that did happen to scores of hundreds of other um, foreigners and Italian, foreign Jews and Italians in that area. So. They hide out, not for chance, in the house of a, a German Jewish refugee who had died when his house was confiscated by um, the by the Nazis on Lake Garda. Uh, and it's there that eventually, when the Allies occupy Milan, Trussi uh, will be captured in a big shootout, you know, something like the Wild West which is the sort of thing he had practiced when he was a squadrista and when he'd been an army lieutenant uh, in, uh, the, uh, in the Libyan Wars, you know, the, the grand escape. But he doesn't escape. Uh, they, he's, he's caught. Uh, he's said to be hung up by his heels and killed alongside of Mussolini. And when the bodies are inspected after, it turns out not to have been Teruzzi, but no. some other poor person uh, identified as this person or that person. And he then has to stand trial, and he's the first big fascist to stand trial. He's given a very long sentence, and he will spend the most time of any fascist, in the sense of another case of his perfect fascistness, to spend the longest time in in the penitentiary uh, in um, Procida, in the island of Procida, uh, only coming out in 1950. When, when so he dies. A, so um, he dies in, in he, his 70s. He, uh, he had a rather eventful life. 
We have to take a little well, no, break. Even younger, right? Yeah, even younger. I think he's he's uh, he's born well, eighty two. So he was born yeah, in eighty two, no, eighteen eighty two, and died yeah. in uh, nineteen fifty. I don't know. My math is really bad. Yeah. So no, that's no, eighteen. No. Oh, that's uh, eighty. Okay, that's sixty eight years. All right. Well, anyway. I'm never good at math. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, Victoria, please stay with us because uh, we want to come back to uh, a discussion about fascism, a word that gets dropped a lot today. Um, but uh, we have to take care of a little bit of business here as well. So um, we'll be back right after this. And we're back from the break. Before we return to my conversation with Professor Victoria de Gracia, I'd like to take uh, a minute to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us get back on our feet because this pandemic has had a de devastating effect on our financial situation. We need everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopez at large and is financially able to go to our website, give to wbai.org. That's given then the number two WBAI. Dot org or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep the one-hour deep dives that we bring you on the show coming to you live on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and uh, give the station some cash flow. And it's also their way of showing support for what we do on this show. So anyone who anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at large by giving us that call at 516-620-3602 or by going to the website, give to WBAI.org, will receive a free copy of the book we are discussing. My guest, uh, Professor Victoria de Grazia's the Perfect Fascist, The Story of Love, Power, and Morality in Mussolini's Italy. It's our way of, of saying thanks for, for being among the many listeners who do uh, sponsor this show. You, in fact, you're our only sponsors uh, because WBAI doesn't take grant money or corporate sponsorship or ads of any kind. Whatever level you feel comfortable contributing at, the important thing is to step up right now to show that support so we can continue to bring you these long form interviews on topics that we hope are of interest to you. And, and I'm happy to report that some of your fellow listeners are stepping up at a variety of levels. Listeners like Gary Cavish of Wayne, New Jersey. Uh, thanks for helping us keep the lights on, Gary. Your fellow listeners uh, like, like Gary have been stepping forward in our hour of need. So if you haven't already, why not make that call today? Again, the number 516-620-3602. Well, we hope you'll go to our website, give to wbaiorg and please make sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at this show, thank you so much. Uh, I'm back now with my guest, Victoria de Grazia, who is the author of a number of books. The one we're discussing, her most recent, is The Perfect Fascist, 
A Story of Love, Power, and Morality in Mussolini's Italy, published by Belknap Press, which is a uh, division of, Har of Harvard University Press. Um, Professor De Grazia, I mentioned earlier that we dropped the word fascist a lot today, but you write that we keep confusing fascist, the historical phenomenon, with fascism, the political label. Does what we call fascist today have much in common with the ideology of Benito Mussolini, Giovanni Gentili, and uh, the, the man we've been discussing, Attilio Taruzzi? Such a good question, and uh, the polemics around it now, but between uh, are, are very are very significant. So I, I'm uh, uh, the school, which I which I don't think is orthodox to say that it's very confusing to use mm. the word fascist uh, for present events. Uh, one thing historians are debating very much what fascism meant in its time. And they have changed very dramatically, especially recently, to emphasize how long it lasted and how many regimes and movements across the globe it embraced. U.S., many little local movements. India, there were movements. There were sympathizers all over. So fascism uh, was a very wide and deep and difficult to understand in the period of the 20s and 30s, which now historians call the first age of anti-globalization in the 20th century. And I think that's a point. The second um, is that it was always used to denounce and therefore in a very crazy, I mean, not crazy way, but misleading way. So communists were the first to denounce fascists, and they were also the first to denounce uh, fascists as fascists, but also their own social democratic comrades as fascists. But, but so let me interrupt for a second. You've written that a couple of your college professors argued that fascism and communism were opposite sides of the same coin. And uh, obviously that's not true, but was that uh, the, the, the common thinking at the time? That was common thinking when I went to college and I denounced anybody who said that as fascist. So <laughs> I, I, my early, you know, Enrage days before I, you know, became more serious about it. When my house mother was a fascist, my father was a fascist, and so on. People were fascists. Leonard, this is your time too. I mean, I'm sure we use that word immensely. But frankly, in well, we call McCarthy a fascist. McCarthy. Well, you know, there. But it's a little like witch hunt. I mean, in the United States in particular, I think that labeling. Uh, is always used to a certain effect. It's like witch hunting, and that's not very good. It's not politics, which establishes enduring mobilizations. What's more, it also is deeply misleading. So if you say, for example, that a present president is a fascist, well, what do you mean? Are you then starting to look out for pogroms? And therefore, you miss completely that militarized police are you know, causing uh, black lives to be lost. So it's a term that's fuzzy and has no, very little predictive value. To, to prove that point, the president uh, has been called fascist, but he has called people who oppose him fascists. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I mean, the phrase creates a lot of confusion, that term, lots. Um, 
Now, of course, I would be um, doing an injustice to my work. <laughs> I would not be promoting my work if I didn't say, but it's very important, like a good you know, professor, to engage in what we call diachronic comparisons. That is, to compare the present with the past. So if we say, hey, this is the age and this anti-global movement, and we get a lot of breakage, a lot of new movements erupting, in uh, you know, which are anti-liberal, uh, which are want to break all the current institutions. It's not clear what they're going to set up in their place. And the United States seems to be leading this. It took advantage of these institutions after World War II. And today, a strong reactionary streak in the U.S. is promoting the destruction of those institutions with projects of all kinds to create new illegal institutions. I think that is terribly important. At that point, it's very worthwhile going back and seeing the immense range of interventions that fascist movements and regimes led, uh, which created this sort of fascist model, and to see how they intervened in the economy, in reconfiguring labor unions, on gender questions, on to create a new international order that would favor uh, the uh, countries like Germany, like Italy, Japan, the wannabes in the imperial system. In the 20s, yeah. wasn't it presented as a kind of a third way between capitalism and socialism because it was, uh, it was supposed to be imposing harmony between labor and capital? Is that what happened? Uh, didn't Mussolini actually uh, unleash his black shirts against unarmed workers and and uh, go a go after the unions? He outlawed yeah, non-fascist unions. Yes, I mean the, the basis of the fascist rise to power is the destruction of the old left, the destruction of all of its organizations and the building in consultation with the industrial classes and the big agrarian uh, capitalists of a new kind of great company union, <laughs> a state company union where labor and capitalists got along in the national interest. That was the idea of the national interest. What that meant in fact was wages declined hugely. You know, they provided services of various kinds, which were all politically regulated. Uh, there was no possibility of, of, of political alternatives. And, you know, it, 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 that lasted 20, 20 plus years. So it, 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 the, that was probably the foundational step to destroy the left and to create these new organizations, which prevented it from, uh, prevented labor from having any other kind of voice, except to support the system. The king the had called on Mussolini to form a, a coalition government, but he outlawed opposition parties. And how, how long before he turned Italy into what we might call a police state? Well, the moment he took power as head of a coalition, he passed got that government 
in the name of national order and security to recognize the fascist militia as a new national, like a national guard. <laughs> that was the first step. <laughs> Once he had his national guard, loyalty him regulated law, it would be like recognizing all the national guards in the United States as an adjunct of the executive office, can you imagine? Police, local police too. That was the first step. And then by you know, hook or crook, still, still elections, by 1925, the uh, series of steps, he outlaws the opposition. By that time, he has the power to do that. And so much had changed in the censorship of all the local newspapers. Major opposition leaders have been killed or driven into exile or jailed. Uh, the elite, even when he seemed about to slip and fall, rallied to him because this is very important to understand this dynamic. They were so afraid of that anarchy would be unleashed if he fell. They didn't know who he to substitute for him. So in face of the unknown, going back to a liberal politician or forming a different kind of coalition, they stuck by him, the king the old, you know, the capitalist elites uh, and the military, as well as the church in a quiet way. So he recognized that hmm, he could move ahead because he had behind him the, the powers that be, even if that meant he had to recognize he had to compromise with them now. He couldn't keep going and breaking everything. He had to start now working out a new illiberal system that would pay attention to their interests. Well, how well did the economy do during his time in power? How, uh, uh, how did Italy fare during the depression? The, the, the growth rates were pretty slow and there was a sort of series of recessions in the 1920s. And, and so there was already pretty you know, high unemployment. So the depression doesn't hit Italy, let's say, the way it hits the United States, which was so industrialized, or Germany, where the you know, unemployment rates are 30%, 18 20%. But um, in Italy, uh, there was a lot of unemployment in the rural areas, very dropping, sorry to be a little bit, technically the commodity prices meant that poor peasants without land, they, you know, their, their, their living standard was terribly reduced. A lot of women lost jobs, so uh, and there was a big underground economy, very poor people. So it was a little buffered. But immediately, what Mussolini did is he started spending state money all over the place. So they're building. My goodness, I was just using it, looking at documentary footage. They're building, or building dams, building railroads, building public housing. So they do embark on this sort of Keynesian policy of spending a lot of government money. Uh, to make work, as well as to you know, provide handouts. Uh, but that was typical of all governments. You can look across the globe. So fascism, you know, it's a kind of spectrum thing. You know, Hitler, uh, Hitler will do that too. Which one will do that? Well, so doesn't FDR. So don't the Soviets with their five-year plans. <laughs> but they're very different political systems. But Mussolini also had an, the grandeur of the past. He talked about reestablishing Italy's Roman Empire. 
did, did that go over well with the public, make them feel prouder of their heritage? I think, I, 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 I think that it, it was sort of part of this great package. So you say we're going to return to the greatness of Rome and the greatness of Italy in the past. And that was a long you know, myth that Italy had once been so great and poor Italy had not yet recovered that greatness. It was being pushed around by you know, the plutocrat nations. It should have its face in the Mediterranean. It should be the leader of civilizing mission in Africa, the way the Romans were. And they would point to Cyrene, and, which is in present-day Libya. Oh, my God, they said Cyrene had 100,000 people. During Roman times, it sent food to Rome. Well, we'll get it back from those Bedouins, you know, those nomads, and we will, you know, create this great empire, and we'll go all the way down to the Sudan. You know, why should the British have these places? They're not doing anything with them. Where we have all these people, and so it was a vision with all of this you know, building going on, all of the propaganda films that people were seeing of the building. It's so exciting. When I look at it now, I go, my God, look at all that building that's going on. Mm. Propaganda. <laughs> there was a lot of building, too. <laughs> a lot of infrastructure going up. And that became a kind of story, especially since they built new towns in Italy and sent peasants there and so on. So there was a kind of sense of Italy's in motion while the rest of the world is suffering depression. Unless it's the Soviet Union where they're sending people to the gulags or you know, it's all it's all forced labor. So that in those moments before especially before Hitler gets going, before nineteen thirty five, uh Italy does seem like a real beacon. American political scientists loved it. <laughs> you know, although, although there was a big to-do really... with the League of Nations after Italy uh, invaded Ethiopia. Uh, but we're not going to get into that I, because we're kind of running out of time. I, I have a couple of other things I want to address. Didn't many countries seek to immunize, immunize themselves from fascism by becoming more conservative at that time? And that was a, well, probably most people, uh, you know, there's a, an embrace of fascism by, you know, which could be by becoming more Catholic, you know, more family-centered, uh, by more becoming more men and women of order. That that was probably a strong reaction. Uh, probably their children then didn't behave that way. They joined the fascist organizations, which were lots of fun, <laughs> caught them with other young people and yeah. you know, with the it, future. In just the last minute or so, didn't Susan Suntag write about fascinating fascism? What was uh, she she writing about there? Oh, she's so smart. And I reread it. And what she was picking up on was, frankly, a kind of awe and marvel at looking at fascist films, especially Nazi films like Lenny Riefenstahl. Uh, and, and she was picking up also in kind of gay culture, which she didn't like, uh, the, 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 regarded as cultureless, a, a certain kind of fag-hag admiration for that culture, especially identified with Lenny Riefenstahl, but also this idea is connected with Foucault, is that you know, fascism binds you, but by breaking the fetters, you really get to feel free. So this kind of low-level Nietzschean vision of fascism as being something that would be 
you know, the moral constraints imposed upon you, and then you would break free and you become a kind of Superman. So she, it's not, it's a kind of fuzzy article, but she did, you know, get some aspect well, of America. Well, we have to, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time, but I'll, I'll definitely yeah. look for that article. Uh, my guest has been Victoria de Grazia. Her book, The Perfect Fascist, A Story of Love, Power, and Morality in Mussolini's Italy, published by Belknap Press, uh, division of Harvard University Press. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else podcasts are available. You can find links to our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows, if you just want to say hello, my station email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just one last moment to ask for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopez at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this thing going. So please step up right now by making a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep this kind of programming going to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And if you sign out now to become a BAI buddy in the name of this show, you'll get a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Perfect Fascist, A Story of Love, Power, Morality in Mussolini's Italy by my guest, Professor Victoria Grazia. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when Carl Hoffman will discuss his book called Liar Circus, a strange and terrifying journey into the upside down world of Trump's MAGA rallies. We'll see you then.